Hey guys, welcome back to the pod, Rambling with Purpose. This is our second episode and one that we think is extremely inspirational. Today we have David O'Mahony, a close friend of both John and I, on the pod. David suffered a severe traumatic brain injury in 2011, which then led to many mental health issues and suicidal thoughts. We will hear from David today about how he combated all of those and has thrived in the face of adversity and how he got to where he is today. Here we are with John, say hello. Hey guys, how you doing? And David, how are you today? Welcome, I'm good, super excited, looking forward to this. Good. David is also doing a TED Talk next weekend, November the 7th, 16th? 17th. The 17th in Bristol. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing to have uh, a TED Talk person on the podcast as our second episode. So, yeah, we're really excited. Thank you for coming. Pleasure. Yeah, I'm looking forward to much of going it myself. I'm looking forward to hearing it, mate. I'm sure you won't get lost on the way, probably. <laughs> yeah. Probably. Have you ever been to Bristol? Several times, actually, interestingly. I almost loved it at one point in my life. Right, cool story. so yeah today right we're going to crack on with um i guess the best thing to do david is to just talk us through your sort of early background kind of life as a kid and then you know leading up to joining the military and and what happened from there really okay so i born and bred in london i grew up with my three sisters and my younger brother and my mum raised us our fathers were never around Grew up in council housing, so in the, the late 80s, early 90s, we were moving around a lot. I'd lived, I think, in five different houses, and for some reason, I was moved to the nearest school every time we moved. And so, by the time I left school, I was a, 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 an introvert, you know, pretty shy, low in confidence and self-esteem. And so I started to mould myself on the people that were around me. Now, growing up in areas where crime is normalised, probably not the best place to mould yourself off the people around you. And by the age of 24, my closest friend had been in prison for murder. My brother faced a firearms charge. And the, the few friends I had left were either drug dealers or drug users. And so I'd always tried try to do the right thing in my life. But I couldn't help but feel that a similar fate would eventually find me like it had my friends. And so... I knew I needed to make a positive change. Um, it wasn't easy to do. The army was, was something I'd always dreamt about, but I'd always avoided because I didn't believe I was good enough, nor did I think I had the, the ability or confidence to go and do something like that. Um, but it got to the point where I was so scared and desperate that sitting in traffic one day, I looked over to my left and there was a, an army careers office and. I'd done a three-point turn on Wembley High Road. <laughs> Parked behind, went into the careers office and said, I want to join the army. And um, yeah, within three months, I was, I was on my way to the shock of family and friends who, when I told them I was joining the army, went, okay, David, of course you are. And I was like, no, actually, I'm really joining the army. So you were 24 when you joined? 24 when I joined, yeah. yes. How did you think the, the process of joining the army? Going through like selection and stuff like that, given how you know how much they push you and test you during that. that so the, I mean? the 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 process for anyone that doesn't know, I guess, is you go away and you do a selection weekend where you have to do basic 
you have to pass basic physical tests. I think it was, you had to be able to do more than 12 chin-ups. You had to be able to run a mile and a half in under 12, in... 12 and a half, I think. 12, in, within 12 and a half minutes. And that, you know, we went to Aldershot, and there was all these, you know, of all different colours, creed, from all different backgrounds, you know. And it wasn't, it wasn't tough. It was, it was a pretty chilled and laid back weekend. But then, you know, I remember standing in the corridors waiting for the medical and we'd all have to go in and see a doctor who would look at our medical records and then, you know. Take, take your pants down. Take our pants yeah. down and tell us to cough. And, and you'd be sitting in the corridor and people would come out and say, you know, distraught looking, saying that the doctor has said that when they coughed, <laughs> there was nothing there. And they, they, they had to go home and they, they weren't going to be selected. And so that was, the, that was the hardest part of selection was, was that feeling of, you know, am I going to be that guy? I need this because I don't want to go back to, mm-hmm. to life as I knew it at the time because I thought, you know, that the, the future for me was bleak. But I passed the selection and then I think, I think about three months I was then given my, my enrollment date to phase one training in, Colchester, in Colchester in Cambridge. And I remember the, the night before I was living with my sister at the time. Gemma, my girlfriend, came over. The, the night before, and I used to have sideburns down to here. Gemma, yeah, you're still, you're, you're still so friends with now. Yeah, I didn't realize it went back that. God, that yeah, f- 15, 16 years we've known each other. Wow. She had the great pleasure of shaving off my sideburns because <laughs> everything has to be short and yeah, took, took my earring out. <laughs> Good. And then, and then you know, the next day, my, my sister's husband drove me up to Cambridge and. And that was it. I was in the army. And, and you know, it wasn't that I was scared about joining the army. I was more scared about what would happen while I was at home. And so it was almost a, because I was scared and sort of not sure what to expect. I was almost able to breathe out once I got there because I knew this is it. As long as I can make it through this training. You know. Were you nervous that, was, was it playing on your mind that if you you know, didn't pass basic or you weren't selected. It was kind of like at that moment in your life, it was like a do or die. It was like, you know, I I can't live the life that I've been living. And if I don't get selected, it would be so crushing. Pretty much. I mean, it was really weird because as John knows in basic training, they, they mentally break you down. Mm -hmm. So at times I very rarely did. I think to myself, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be doing this. It was more a case of, I need to do this. I can't fail at this because going back, I, I can't allow that to Wasn't happen. Wasn't an option. And I think I picked, up a, I picked up no injuries through the 14 weeks. And then on the, I think it was week 11, I was playing basketball in the gym and I knocked my knee and the, the fat pad of my knee swelled up. And it was the, the, just before we were supposed to go and do adventure training. And I was on crutches for four days. And I remember them saying, if it hasn't gone down, we'll have to back troop you. And that, like, that's not the worst thing to do, to get back troops in basic training. But, but I was more concerned about not necessarily passing out, but just staying in mm-hmm. and, and having that chance. And then, of course, passing out of training with the people that I started with on day one. Yeah, it was a, t- it was a tough experience, but it, it moulded me and it sort of... 
it broke it broke me down psychologically and then rebuilt me by the end of the 14 weeks i was a i was still myself but just a better more efficient version of and that's i guess how the process is designed it's designed to do that to people and and filter out you know i mean i'm talking i've not done it but yeah that's it's the designed point. to break break out your habits i mean it's like you say they break you down mentally kind of take break everything down take everything away and then rebuild the right habits so you're still the same person but it just develops yeah you know, you know your ability to plan prepare and execute things it's just that unless you actually experience it it's, it's quite difficult to explain it's, it's grueling but it's also enjoyable like I enjoyed my phase one training I, like I prepare for it quite a bit fitness wise anyway so I could at least chill with that area of it but no matter how well you're doing on the, the mental side of it, they will just push even harder. But they're going to break you down. Yeah, I think my 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 toughest period in training was on week. You're not allowed to leave camp until week ten, and and on that weekend you get to see your family. They come down, and you can go and spend a couple of hours in Cambridge, and it happened to be my birthday that weekend. And and it was in the period where they were they were absolutely smashing us mentally and physically and something happened and and even when you performed they said you didn't perform and they said right you're not having the weekend with your family members this weekend and it was my birthday and in the process of beasting us out on this patch of grass for a couple of hours then then they said run back to your room everyone run back to your real rooms as i was running i tried to cut through some trees because by this stage Everything you do is a competition. You want to be the first person mm -hmm. to get back to your room. So I cut through these trees and someone had left a washing line up. Oh. And it caught me. I've got a scar here. Oh, yeah, I can An upside-down smile. I can see it, yeah. Where it caught me on my chin. Absolutely. <laughs> and took me off of, you know, it was like something from a film. Oh, um, my gosh. And I remember then sitting in the med centre just getting it checked because we were due to go on exercise the following week and they were talking about it could get infected. And I remember thinking, this can't... Yeah, I can remember that stage. Where you, you, you wouldn't want like anything... Because you've been smashed so much and it's like, like at the end of the tunnel and then the final exercise is... I mean, it's almost kind of like the rubber stamp. When you come back off that, everything's very, very chilled. You're yeah. kind of preparing your drilling stuff for a passing out period. I can remember I, I got a cut underneath my armpit. I don't have no idea how I've done it about a week before two weeks before uh, this exercise and it got infected and no matter what you were not willing to use it or like anything to stop you've gone on this because being backdropped at that stage you go back to the start of this phase which meant you were going to have to go back through it all again it was about survival and they taught us to do that to, to find a way to crack on yeah. and survive regardless of what's happening you know if you would mask an injury in fear of being backdropped I suppose that probably, I mean, we can get onto that in a bit, but that probably set you up, that kind of training that you had over that period of time for what was going to then happen next. So how long were you in the in the army before before the accident? So I think I was in, I think I was in the army for three years, or I think it was at my four-year point, the injury happened, or just before my four-year point. Um, so it was the 7th of October, two thousand. 11 you know when when everything is going to plan in life and you're flying high something will always come along and bring you back down to earth and for me you know I was a I wasn't the best soldier but I was a very good soldier I was recognized as being able to administrate myself and I was landing all of the cushy jobs that the, the good switched on 
young soldiers did. I was getting ready to post to the armoured regiment um, with the hope to do the Afghanistan tour in 2012. And then, and then, yeah, I went out to a boxing event um, that the military had put on. It was the military army versus the, the British army versus the American army at the Royal Albert Hall. And our barracks in Knightsbridge was literally a stone's throw from there. My, I worked directly for the corporal major at the time and he said, you know, you've, you've, you've had a fight for the regiment, you know, go along to it. You know, it'd be good for you to see what the British team do. And, <clears throat> and so I said, I would love to. And um, at some point he had said, come on, let's, let's walk back to the barracks once the event had finished. And my last memory was, was an hour or so before then. And I was struck by a vehicle outside of my barracks which the force of the impact had pulled me beneath the vehicle and lodged my head and body into its wheel arch. And I was very lucky that I was with Corporal Major Ireland at the time because he had extensive battlefield experience and he was sort of, he had become a role model to me because he was, he was such a switched on soldier and he was able to command men and look after them. And so he freed me from beneath the vehicle and then so you were underneath the vehicle? Yeah, trapped in the, the wheel arch of the vehicle. And I think the taxi, he didn't know that I was underneath the vehicle and he, as, he had tried, as, as he attempted to pull over to the side of the road, I had, you know... Being dragged. Was being dragged. And, and, and yeah, he, he, he freed me from the vehicle. And, I, and it's funny because I have a clip of him in the TED Talk speaking about you know, what he saw because he says himself of all the things he's seen in Afghanistan and battlefield injuries, he's never seen that amount of thick black blood coming from someone's ears and nose and mouth. And he says he wiped the blood from my face and checked for life signs and I was unresponsive, there's nothing. And then he said, like, a, like something from a movie, it was as if every time I needed the right person to arrive, the right person did. And so he, as he was um, reviving me, he got a tap on the shoulder and it was a military medic who said, I'm a medic, let me get in. She jumped on top of me and, and started doing her bits and pieces while they went for the ambulance to arrive. And then the ambulance did. And for some, they couldn't land a helicopter because they would have had to have landed at the other side of the barracks, which was on the park and it, it just, it wasn't worth it. And then there was some issues with they couldn't get a trauma doctor. And so the ambulance had said, well, we'll resuscitate him all the way into hospital. And had they have done that, I would have been brain dead by the time I got there. And then again, like a film, Paddy got another tap on his shoulder and it was a special forces surgeon. Oh. And he had said, he's a soldier. I'm a colonel surgeon. I'm going to induce the coma at the scene. And so the, the, the paramedics, which carry, I think, the, the medication, but can't administer it. So he asked, the, the special forces surgeon asked them all to hold me down, administered the, intubated me, administered the drug, and Pad, uh, Corporal Major Islands, every time I speak to him, he says, he never understood why they asked, why they were asked to hold me down, but he said as the drug was administered, I started to violently shake. At least they loaded me back on into the back of the ambulance and he said that as the doors slammed shut, he was stood there covered in my blood, thinking, there's no way I'm going to see this guy again. You can't come back from that. 
That was it. That's, yeah, it's an incredible story. So, so you were induced into a coma at the scene. Yes. And you were in that coma for four weeks. Is four that weeks. Correct? I think it's four weeks in the coma, and then I think two or three weeks on high dependency, where you're you're on life support on certain forms of life support, but but they're they're trying to bring you around. And the doctors had had informed your family they didn't believe you were gonna. Yeah, so that they, 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 uh, quite alarmingly said to my family that they should suggest switching my life support off, which, you know, I think that was a week in to the coma. And then two weeks in, they had these, these pressure bolts, like Frankenstein sticking out my head, and I've got the scars somewhere up here. And they measure the, the pressure on your brain, because although they have a drain in the back of your head, the, the bleeding, obviously, when when you cut your head, it bleeds like no other part of your body. And um, the bolts weren't giving an accurate reading and they were going up and down and my family were being told to say their goodbyes at some times and then, oh, he's stable again. But I was non-responsive to treatment. And then the, the, they'd done a scan and it showed that my, the pressure that had built on my brain had forced the brain down onto its stem and over to the left-hand side of my skull and they were like, the only thing left to do is to remove the right side of his skull. And I remember here listening to my family. They said that as the doctors said that, we need to rush him in for emergency surgery. They were wheeling me out of the ward. And the doctor said, you need to quickly say your goodbyes because it's unlikely you'll survive the surgery. And the funniest thing for me about that period is that my mum, of course, distraught, and my, my family, she collapsed to the floor. And my... My squadron leader, who's um, a gentleman by the name of Major T.A., who's now the, he's the Queen's first black equerry. Wow. He, um, and he was my squadron leader, and he was, he was very much for his troops. He picked my mum up, shook her, and said, get a grip. You might not, you might not realise this, but he's a household cavalryman, and he's going to survive. And that, you know, the... the my family clung to that military, the dark humour and banter, and yeah. uh, because you know everything else had been taken from them. Um, I survived the surgery. So they just they removed was it how much forty five percent of your skull? Probably yeah, probably just cut a big hole. Yeah. With a if if you, if you saw the pictures, it's it's like a cheese, one of those cheese wires. <laughs> you, you, it's, it's not a nice neat cut. Um, it certainly didn't sand the edges. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, and then the, my brain then, as a result of the, the gaping hole, s- s- swelled out. I then begin, begin to sort of, my condition began to stabilise. But they'd said to my family that, look, if he'll, he'll come round from the coma, he's going to be in a vegetative state for the rest of his life. And so I think by that point, my family were just grateful that I was alive. And so regardless of how I was when I woke up, they didn't care. And so I think around week four, they, they started to, for any of the, the people who are doctors out there and understand this process, as I'm sure some of you will listening in today, um, as far as I understood it, they reduce the sedation and then see how you respond, how your body responds. And what was happening when they would reduce slowly, you're then supposed to slowly respond. But my, it was as if my something inside of me, the moment they'd reduce slightly, I would start kicking off. 
and then they'd have to put me back into a coma. Oh, wow. And so I think this went on for about a week where they were they were trying to bring me out slowly and I was kicking and screaming the moment they reduced the sedation. Um, what was your first memory from coming out of the coma? My first memory was screaming for the... Two memories, so screaming for the surgeon and when he came down to my bedside, said, David, what's wrong? I said, why on earth have you only shaved one side of my head? <laughs> <laughs> Send a nurse down with a set of clippers to sort my hair out. I demanded it. And I, I, at the time, I was very Had rude. Had you seen a mirror? Like, I, I'd, Yeah, so I'd, I'd seen... Because I, was, I wasn't allowed to leave my bed because they told me I couldn't walk. And I was like, I bet I can kick you. And she was like, no, you can move your legs, but you've been in bed for so long. And the brain injury, you know, you're not going to be able to walk. And so family members had showed me. And um, yeah, I was horrified. Never mind that, you know... Half of your skull Half was, of my skull was missing. Yeah, I, I was more than... you saw that for the first time? Because I've seen these pictures. I didn't... Um, I, I never saw... You know, if you, if you go onto my Instagram or you check out my website, you'll see the pictures of me with... And it is a... You know, it, it's impossible to miss. But the weird thing is, is that when I woke, I never noticed... I never saw myself as anything different. And I thought, you know... I saw the haircut before I saw the, the, the skull the missing. It was, you know, I looked like I receded from, from ear up, you know, and, and I was horrified. And then the, so that memory, and then waking up, I had um, a catheter in and nappies because I could see the bathroom and they wouldn't let me. They were like, you can't get out of bed. And I was like, you're kidding me. I can see it. I can get out of bed. And so I wrapped the catheter around my arm and started tugging on it saying, take this out or I'll pull it out. And the doctors were like, oh, stop. Stop, David, we'll take it out. Was this you acting like that? Or was this just given what had just happened? Is this how you directed before that I, accident? Or was this, was this your personality? Or was this, were you like not yourself at all? At this I wasn't myself at all. And it would be so easy for me to, you know, play the hero and all of this and say, I refuse to give in. And, but consciously... I, I was I was on autopilot and it, you know it was about surviving much like in basic training I've got to get through this it was as almost if you know this survival autopilot had taken over me because I don't really remember very much from that time and a lot of you know I was convinced that I'd lost my legs oh really and my family would go David your legs are here and I'd go no they're not and, and so my brain was in one sense you know delusional but in the other sense, I need to get out of this bed. But that goes into sort of the, the fight or flight kind of theory, doesn't it? Where, where humans are, where you're stripped down to your barest and your rawest and you're, you know, you're missing a chunk of your head. And whatever was in you was saying, you know, although you're saying you're not going to play the hero, it's like it was this steely determination that was like, no, I am going to be able to go to the toilet. I want to get up and that because that's all I know how to do. So... I think that's quite an interesting thing. Because, so, I, I mean, if I remembered, you know, you know, I would say that on one hand and on the other, I wouldn't recognise my, my brother or... Right. I would, like, yeah. I'm not in the army, you know. And, and so it, it was, it was, an, it was a, an autopilot that I guess I'm super grateful that I had within me. I don't know how I activated it or... But like you say, I'd been, I'd been stripped back to almost childlike mm. mentally mm. but then this this animal within me was like 
you know, I, I was wanted to go home and just crack on with life. And but there's a resilience in humans that I think people don't realise you have it in you. I think that's human. Like people underestimate yeah. the strength of human will, and and actually, it's important that we remember that. You know, we are not our brains, but at the same time, you know, our brains are in control of everything. And if your brain decides it wants to do something, if it wants to survive or it wants to flee, it's going to do it, whether you like it or not. And I guess that period of my life is evident because I didn't know Monday from Sunday. I, I was convinced I'd lost my legs. But on the other hand, my brain knew enough to know that I can walk, I can go to that toilet, even though physically I couldn't. It said, you, you can go you need to use that toilet mm -hmm. you know you need to start pulling yourself up out of bed at night to build the strength back in your legs because the doctors won't give you rehab like that wasn't me consciously it was a human will and resilience yeah fighting for me because I, I couldn't fight for myself because i didn't know you know i yeah, didn't know, didn't know yeah. what day it was how do you feel like telling this story? Because this is like interesting. Like the first, I've heard this story a few times, but I've never heard it in quite as much detail. The first thing you told me what happened, you know, it was very, I got by a car. And then over time, I've heard more detail, but this is probably the most like vivid uh, explanation of it I've ever heard. Do you know what I mean? Did you think there was some part of you over in the beginning that wasn't quite ready to talk about it? And then the more you've went on, it's become more comfortable again to let them no I think it, it's out. always been easy to speak about it because it's almost like I didn't experience it I was just I was the audience to all of this I guess you know had I experienced the pain and you know the suffering like my family had you know if you speak to them it's probably very difficult for them to speak yeah. about it but for me it's easy because I was a passenger so that goes on to the next part do you find I mean, what came next for you? You know, you've, you've had this extreme physical trauma. You know, you've got a brain injury. You're, you, you live with that today. Yeah. And what came next was rebuilding your life. You know, you, you, couldn't, you weren't going back to the army. There was mental health issues that then came. Is that stuff, which we can, will now talk about, kind of, is that more difficult? So I think that the... The, 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 the two years that I was still in the army after the accident, I was in denial and in autopilot that whole time. You know, even being selected to march the Great Britain flag out of the opening ceremony and then being called by and my that surgeon. Was the, the 2012? The 2012 Paralympic Param Games. Yeah. And then receiving a call day before the opening ceremony from my surgeon saying we're ready for you to come in for reconstructive brain surgery. And I, again, that autopilot and that human will and resilience said you know I told the army I had a medical appointment in the Midlands so I needed a few days off to travel 24 hours after I was released from hospital having had brain surgery I went and marched that flag out at the opening ceremony That's and incredible. if you watch the video no one realised my head was whole again up until this point I was never able to wear headdress because the, the, the pure wonkiness of my head um, but the cameraman zooms in on the side of my head and you can see the freshly cut scar and the stitches were hanging from my, my head when I'd done that. You, and that's crazy for me to have, have done that. And I remember marching out thinking, don't have a seizure, don't have a seizure. And as we stopped at the flagpole and the flag went up, 
we were, you know, the, the Olympic Stadium, we were literally on the doorstep of this one of the stands and the flashes from the cameras. And I remember I just stood there and went, stay calm, closed my eyes and thought, because, you know, having brain surgery, the risk of seizure goes up through the roof. Of course, yeah. And I was there completely calm as if, and I look back now and I think that's dangerous for me to have done that. But I think then once I left the army, that denial, that resilience and that, you know, refusal to give in only got me so far because I found myself in my bedroom living with my nan because I wasn't able to live on my own. No longer having the support structure of not only the army, but living with your friends, the banter, the support, the, you know, the exercise and the encouragement. And when that was all gone, you know, I, I faced the biggest challenge that, that I've had today. And that was, you know, when I started to develop suicidal thoughts. How long after this, the accident was, was that? So it would have been 2015, early 2015. I, it was the first time I, 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 you know, I saw suicide. I think I'd been suffering from anxiety and depression since the accident, but I was completely unaware of it. I was using gambling um, at casinos and nightclubs and, and alcohol to sort of mask what was going on. Um, but then once I left the army, I think I went out one evening with my sister and my friends and I, I got so drunk I forgot who my sister was. And that, I woke up the next day and that scared me. And, and you know, the, I remember sitting on my bed one day, I was watching telly and I would just imagine myself hanging from my wardrobe. And almost like, you know, when you're daydreaming and then you realise you're daydreaming. I was daydreaming, like, what would it look like? What would, you know, what colour would my hands go as a result of the oxygen being cut off? And then I go, what on earth are you thinking about, David? Stop mm. being a, an idiot. Just writing it off as a crazy thought. And then it happened, it started to happen a lot. Um, I put my bathrobe on after getting out the shower. And as I'd tie the belt, a voice in my head would... would say take that belt and just tie a knot around your neck just to see what it'd feel like or go and hang it from your wardrobe to see what it would look like almost trying to encourage me into and again at the tempting you tempting me and at the beginning you know I'd written it off as you're crazy you know you're not going to do anything like that but the longer it went on the closer you know I then started getting to the point where should I I started thinking should I just do this and I never in my, deep in my heart, I never wanted to take my own life, but my brain, it got to the point where my brain was producing it as, a, as an option. And, and I was scared because for the first time in my life, I understood just how powerful a machine our brains are. And actually, you know, when people take their own lives, I believe certainly that it's not the person, it's their brain. And if your brain decides it's gonna do something, you know, up to a certain point, you, you have no say. Just like me waking and my brain fighting back for me while I was the passenger, you know, had I have had I have continued to live a life that didn't support my brain injury, my brain would have taken my own life. And but, but you did have a say because you're here today and you changed the course of your of your future and your history, you know. So whilst you were happy, your brain was giving you those thoughts and it was developing and it was growing and it was growing, you took action or you... Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
I think it's important to say that, you know, I, I confided in no one. And this is the often, this is often whenever I speak about suicide, you know, I get family members of, of young men and women who have taken their own lives coming up to speak to me. And, and they, they, I seem to give a perspective that no one else has been able to give because, you know, I didn't confide in no one about what was going on in my head because I, I didn't want to or because I thought that it was weak. My brain, I just never once thought about it. Never. And, you know, and now I understand why someone who takes their own life and the people around go, where on earth did this come from? We had no idea, you know. It can be so easy to take that personally, but actually, you know, my brain never said, David, go and speak to someone. And my sister for a long time had said, something's not right. You need to go and see someone. And I had batted it off as... You know, I'm just enjoying life. I'm making the most of surviving. I was very lucky that I was offered the opportunity to work with a specialist. And my sister was there when that opportunity was presented to me and she forced my hand. If she wasn't there, I probably wouldn't have taken it. And who knows where I'd be, you know, if I'd even... A specialist in what? Uh, a neuropsychologist. And, and, you know, she forced my hand and I... That wasn't a turning point for me. I didn't think, right, I'm going to be able to get some help. I was scared. And so once she had forced my hand, it was almost as if something had changed in me. And I thought, right, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest about what's going on here. To the side. You know, I never told my sister or my family what was happening. But I spoke to the, the neuropsychologist. And, and I remember on one of our first sessions, the first thing he does done was he stopped me working full time. And he said... You know, you work Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, 8.30 till 12. And I'd gone into full-time employment initially, having been told I'd never be able to do that as a result of my injury. Sort of on that autopilot, what do the doctors know? Mm. And there was probably partly the reason that the suicidal thoughts happened, because I was living in a way that my brain couldn't handle. And, and once he'd reduced my working hours... He then introduced me to gratitude and daily reflection. You know, he said he wanted me to keep a diary every day, to write about everything that went on in my went on in my day, and then at the end I was to find three things to be grateful for, three things that were nice about my day, and three good deeds I had done. And I remember thinking, and I speak about this at the TED talk, how is this going to stop me taking my own life? Are you kidding me? You so know, effectively, he's told you to do a daily journal. To a daily journal, and I was and that will save your life. And I, he didn't say it would save my life. If, if anyone has worked with psychologists, they're not the most helpful in their dialogue, you know. And, but he had said, if you could get to 30 days journaling, you'll have the answer to your question. And I was like, at that, at that moment, I was sort of like, you know, if my brain's going to take my life, just do it. I never thought about medication. And had it been prescribed to me at that period, I would have lapped it up. I can see how some people end up on a lot of medication. It's not not through fault or because they've choice, but because at that period, if someone then goes, "Here, this is going to fix you," then you know I would have taken it. Yeah. And I remember leaving that session and thinking, "What? What on earth?" It sort of resided to whatever happened next, and I just thought, I felt like that was the last, the last point of retreat for me, and. And whatever happened next was going to happen. And, and I initially, I started using the journal and I struggled with it. I would journal for maybe a couple of days. And then I would stop for two weeks. 
And every time I'd go, I'd, I was working with him twice a week at this point. And he would always reinforce it. And he'd reinforce other other things, you know, like pacing. And I really struggled going back to my employer and saying, I can't work full time. I need to work these hours. You know, it was showing that I wasn't capable of doing something for the first time in my life yeah. was, was probably something that, that I battled with for maybe a couple of years because it was all good, you know, speaking about what I'd overcome and what I'd have achieved. But when I actually had to face the fact that I was different and unbeknown to me, you know, in those exercises and, you know, me sitting down with my employer and saying, I'm really sorry, but I can't work full time. Knowing that, you know, I could get sacks, just saying, you know, this is me. Mm -hmm. This is what I'm capable of. What do you want to do next? Um, it sort of was a, a turning point for me because I'd, I'd almost then accepted that, okay, I am different. Life isn't going to be as I intended it, but th this is a start, I guess. And, and I guess at the same time, I was getting on well with the journal. And I think about three to six months, I got to 30 days unbroken journaling. And in the session with my psychologist, I, was, I remember I was super excited. I was super proud of myself. And I said to him, I've got to 30 days. I've done it. And he was like, what's different? And I said, life's got a bit weird. And he was like, what do you mean? And I said, people are looking at me funny. And I'm getting emails and these opportunities are popping up in my life. And I said, I feel like part of my brain is telling me that something bad is about to happen to me. So this is why this good stuff is happening. And he was like, he's, I remember he, he half smiled and said that, that, David, you need to understand that as a result of your work journaling and your, your new awareness of yourself, it's starting to change the way you see life and your life. And that's changing who you are as a person. And other people are able to pick up on that. And I remember saying to him, what, are you, talk, is, are you talking about this positive energy stuff? And I, you know, I've been very cynical my whole life and sort of said, that's all rubbish and, you know, the power of now. And, and he said, yeah, you know, the, the, think about it. As a result of you journaling every day, every following day, you're, you're a little bit more mindful of what's going on around you and things you need to do to be better. That then in turns how you perform and what, how you act in day-to-day -day life. And people pick up on that. And so this is why these opportunities aren't fluke or because anything bad is about to happen to you. They've come to you because, because you've changed who you are and what you're putting out into the world. Not necessarily energy, but you know the, the good deeds you're doing, the, how polite you've become, the, the gratitude. And I remember at that point, I started to think to myself, you know, I didn't believe in it, but as it continued to happen in my life, I started to think, well, this is incredible. You know, if this has done this for me, what else is out there? It then moved from gratitude and daily reflection. I then started thinking, well, I started reading books for the first time in my life, lots of self-help books by Eckhart Tolle and books on gratitude and compassion. And then sleep is super important for me post-injury, but also incredibly important in the CrossFit and certainly for you, Rosie. Yeah, that's something I wanted to jump in about the because the journaling, it sounds, you know, you, you write it people disregard it you write a diary for 30 days well so david and i sat down 
about a year ago, a year and a half ago, I would say. No, it was about a year ago, almost yeah. the day. And I approached him and I said, well, we, we, we had a chat and I kind of, we looked to have him mentor me. And there was, um, there was a period of time where, you know, district was in the pipeline. We were working really hard on it. And my golf was subsequently struggling. And I was just having a, a, you know, a confidence crisis of whether I could, could do the things I, I was doing and whether I was going to be successful with, with my professional golf and where the district was going to work. And, and we sat down and we had a conversation and I've always found David's story incredibly inspiring. It's hard not to when you, when you hear him talk, but he delivered a, a sleep hygiene talk to uh, the Wandsworth gym. And after listening to that, I then asked for a coffee and we, we had a chat, didn't we? And, and I, he said to me, it's funny because he looked at me and he said, nobody's ever been able to do 30 days on their first attempt you said it's 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 too difficult you get you get to it and you and actually and then he said to me but if there's anyone that i think could do it <laughs> you'll be the type of person that will do it because you're stubborn and whatever i actually never made it to 30 days i think i got to 28 which is like heartbreaking yeah basically it the difference in my life from the journaling it was you're you're so right people you start to look at the world differently you start to get this like the smiling thing it's amazing you notice people smiling at you and you think what's wrong is there something on my face <laughs> like what what but actually it's just because you're generating this kind of positivity and and I, I do believe that what you put out you get back and I think gratitude is is the word that I suddenly went into to tournaments feeling like you know it's okay what happens if I shoot a high number it doesn't matter because there is so much in life to be happy about and to be positive about that this is, and, it, and then the golf doesn't define me. I think that was what was I was get, struggling with. It was whether me as a professional golfer and or me as a business person, as an entrepreneur, whether is that all that I've got to me? You know, it's an identity thing. And actually through the, through the journaling, I started to feel like, no, there's so much more to my life than my job, effectively. It's interesting because you'd, not only have you, did you never tell me you got to 28 days, <laughs> but we never, we sort of spoke. I always thought that you sort of fell off of the journaling. And, and I'm, I, look, I'm not a life coach or a mentor, but I offered that to Rosie because we've become friends. So it sort of happened, just popped up out of nowhere. Um, and we hadn't spoke really about it. And so it's, it's no surprise to me, it's, but it's also incredible at the same time that not only you got to 28 days, but you're able to demonstrate, you know, the differences that you saw in that. Because, again, I have to pinch myself to say, how have I been able to, you know, through having a coffee and speaking about some stuff, enable you to have that impact and see the, the force behind something as small as that. And that that's incredible. This is what keeps happening in my life now. And, you know, I build friendships and we end up, you know, like John and I empowering each other, that in itself is inspiring. That's living, you know. But that, to me, I think this is this is kind of where you're, right. And don't get me wrong, there are people that suffer injuries, I'm sure. And but there's something about who you are as a person, and that goes back to you know back to your base, but before your basic training and deciding that you were going to make a change in your life, and now you've got this ability to help others improve their lives. Because w one of the things we were talking about earlier was 
you know, you've suffered something that is incredibly, like the adversity that you've suffered, but that people listening to this shouldn't think that they, like an obstacle in their life, like something like a brain injury. It might not present itself as a brain injury. It might present itself as feeling anxious in social situations or something that they believe is small, but actually is such a big thing for them. And I think the, what you're doing and the work that you do gives people the confidence. And this journaling stuff, that's one, there's, there's one tool. It might not work for everybody, but, but it's one tool that can help actually positively change people's lives. And John and I spoke about this last, last time on the podcast of why we do what we do. It's because we get to see people changing their lives for the better through fitness and the confidence that that gives people. One question I did have is, do you find it difficult to not have, I was talking about identity there, but do you find it difficult having this, your injury sort of define you or, or where you are now? Because obviously you talk about it through your motivational speaking a lot, but you know, as a human, as a friend, you're so much more than a brain, your brain injury, does that? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I think I'm very lucky that, you know, I've been, I've embraced what I've been through and I see the, you know, rather than looking at the negatives in it, I choose to see the positives in it and that I'm able to use my story to, to deliver talks and so, or to help other people. And so I'm happy for it to define me, but then in the same time, you know, there is negatives to it because especially with friendships and, you know, this is where me and John's friendship has grown a lot because he will always say, David, let's go and do this, you know, for example, when he got married to meet her in Costa Rica and he, he, he'd said to me, you know, come on, come over. And I was like, I would love to come over, but cognitively the planning of booking my tickets and where I was going to stay. And I didn't know Misha's parents and I was worrying and, and it was a 12 hour flight and I thought, I can't do this. And I remember John, bless him, supported me and said, you know, you've got this. You know, remember what we'd done in New York when we just booked and went. And I said, yeah, but this is Costa Rica. It's a lot further. And they said to tell you again, like, it was the same thing, just to tell you, like, relax, you're going to be with us. I think at that point as well, we told Misha's mum that you were going to stay with us at the house. So I'm kind of reassuring you to be with us 24-7, relaxing and stuff. But this is something we talked about this the other day. It's something there's been a few cases where we're trying to do something you know, a big challenge and stuff, and I do notice that you you do worry about it or you, you don't feel that you can do it. It's tough because in my, in my heart, I want to do these things and I know I can do them. But my brain responds, you know, my brain throws up the warning sign, you know, with the duathlon. No. And then I start to think, well, I have to now think about, you know, for every action in my life, there's a reaction. And, and in a normal person, you know, someone like yourself, Rosie or John, you know, you might be tired for a couple of days. But for me, it's not just about being tired for a couple of days. It's that tiredness will come on in half a day and will take me a week to recover from. And I then have the anxiety and the palpitations. And I walk a very thin line in life it's like where, balance, isn't it? where I'm mm. trying to, to do the things that, that are important to me and manage friendships because... It's hard for me to be a good friend. John, you know, is very understanding and doesn't 
you know, doesn't expect anything from me, but a lot of people aren't like that. And, and I guess in that term, you know, my injury defines me negatively, as much positively as it does negatively. I just, I guess, choose to focus on the positives and accept the things I'm not able to do in my response to and I think I think that's an, a really important point. It's we generally know, or we have a moral compass, or, or you know whatever you want to call it, a conscience, or whatever it is inside you that will generally guide you in the right. You know, you say you know that you can't do certain things because of the recovery time and how that's going to affect you. And I'd say generally, people make decisions to please others a lot of the time, which then I think leads to unhappiness because you're putting. I mean, I'm not saying be selfish and be and be, but you kind of have to be, right? But I can't. That's how I have to live my life now. So there's a self care. If you know, to run this out to other people that suffer with similar mental health kind of issues, I think there is a self care kind of theme that runs through this, where you do have to look after yourself primarily. You know, and I say that with a, you know, without being completely in your own world and looking after other people you know but you do have to listen to what your body and what your brain is telling you because only you know you know only you knew that you were having those thoughts and it's, it's tough to do because you you know you know you need to do it but also you're there's part of your brain and your heart saying you know i don't want to let john down or yeah you know, for the podcast for example i texted you last night saying i'm coming over tomorrow can we do it then because my brain was going you're doing the podcast on Saturday morning, you've got Murph on Sunday, you're going to have a heart attack. Mm. That's my, And I'm like, yeah. no, it's fine. And my brain's going, no, it's not. Yeah. And, you know, I'm tr- and, and in many cases, I'm able to go with my heart and knowing that I'm okay. But then in some cases, I have to go, my brain's right. No, John, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do a, a 20k bike ride with you. Well, also, I think John should probably listen well, to that's his, the thing, listen it? to yeah. his body slightly more. <laughs> but David, you're, you're quite comfortable telling me, so you'll tell me the reason not. It's not not because, you know, I can't be bored, you'll say like, I'm not capable of... Do you comfortable telling everybody that? Or you'll tell me no, it's because of this, and I'll know. No, probably not. Not to push then. Probably um, not. Like, I would say to you, because we're close friends, but, you know, if, if Tom had asked me, could I do something, and I'll say, Tom, you know... Probably not, you know, maybe another time or... But I think that, you know, what we expect of ourselves and what we expect of others, we continue to raise the bar higher and higher and and we set ourselves up for failure in doing so. And I think the greatest thing, the greatest tool for me was self-compassion and saying, you know, actually it's okay. I might not be able to climb, do the the duathlon in Mont Blanc, you know. But you will. (laughs) <laughs> and and you sit there and go you can do it you can do it you can do it and I know that I can but maybe medically as a result of my injury it's going to stop me but I think that you the know, self-compassion stuff that comes I think it's a catch-22 because also people might be listening to this saying well how do you you know I hate my I don't like myself so and and that comes through well I think in day to like in normal you know life people without injuries and I think to before I had my injury, it was, why can't I save this much money? Why exactly. Why have I not got my own property? Why have I not got, you know, a girlfriend? Why, why am I not able to build muscle like, you know, 
someone else in the army? Why, you know, why is my hair not like that, theirs? Why, you know, and, and life, you know, it, it forces upon us, you know, how we should be or, you know, what's right and what's wrong. And, and being self-critical, it's more than just, you know, being critical of your mistakes. There's not, there's not necessarily anything wrong with that. Um, but being critical of naturally of who you are is a bad thing that that that, that will, will chip away at your self-confidence and your self-esteem to the point where you know you, you turn to alcohol you turn to drugs you know you, you you lose jobs you get yourself into debt and I think that the gratitude and daily reflection exercise you know despite being handcuffed by my brain injury because I don't have a choice the, the journaling helped me realize that this is me, you know, that, and me is okay. Yeah. So what is, what, what is the one piece of advice that you would give people from all of this and from what I've learned in my lessons, I would say it starts from the ground up and, and it's like building a, a wall. Like you have to lay one brick at a time and that comes through having, you know, daily goals. And it starts with today I will write in my journal I and and perhaps journaling maybe it's not journaling but whatever it is whatever seems to work for you for me the thing that started to change was writing three down three things in my life that I was grateful for like that to me was the biggest because I started to realize that you know my family's healthy I'm healthy and I've got an amazing support system an amazing group of friends and to me you know daily just thinking about that brings you back down to earth and I think just start small and you start to see really big changes happening in your life um, yeah I think that the the advice I could give to, to anyone actually that they can action now is to, is to establish like you said Rosie a solid foundation in your life because that's something that my psychologist is always banging on about to me and, and you know when I went to see him a couple of weeks ago and I said about my speaking he said I'm worried I said, why are you worried? And he said, because it affects your foundation. And, and what I mean by, by foundation is, you know, look at your lives and, you know, you need to have an equal amount of everything. So if, if you, on a graph, have got work as, you know, as a five on your, in your foundation, you know, there's nothing we can do. We have to go to work, some of us. Um, but then what you need to do is you need to have an equal balance of physical and social activities as you have work because what happens is if work outweighs your physical and social activities there's an imbalance there and that creates unhappiness and issue inefficiency and over long periods of time anxiety and and depression and so for my own foundation you know my morning routines are super important to me you know giving myself an hour and 15 minutes to prepare for my the days that I work and not allowing anything to get in the way of that and then I have you know my routine to work work which I can't control what happens there and then my evening routines and so that you know Monday through to, to Friday I get up at the same time every day that I'm working and I will always go straight into the same routine so, so it, it becomes a solid staple of, of my life that I rely on and some people when I do talks, say an hour and an hour and thirty minutes before 
you know, between waking up and leaving the house for work. That's insane. I need, I need to use at least 45 minutes of that for sleep. But it doesn't, if I sleep in and I rush around, that then affects my ability to, to not only be efficient, but be happy. And so if, you know, if you're working 10 hours a, 10 hours a day, then you need to, on your weekends, try and match that level of efficiency with something you enjoy. You know, be it like you playing golf, Rosie, or John, you know, going out and, and exercising. You know, you can't have an, an imbalance. And if you have got it, tr sort it out. Because, mm -hmm. you know, that's almost the, the, the step one is to look at your life and everything that's part of it and look at, well, what would I like to do more of? What would I like to do less of? Can I do less of that? And if so, let me let me bring my reading time up or let me bring my sleep time up so everything is on a level playing field. And then that gives you a foundation to then work from. I think there's a stigma um, with people seeing therapists and looking after their mental health because it's, it's not something that you can see in a person. You know, if you've got a broken leg, I can see that you're on, on crutches. But if you are suffering from anxiety or depression, it's very easy to hide. And I think one thing that I think I want to get across on this is it's, you know, don't feel like it's a mark against you because you, you're going to see a therapist or a psychologist to, to kind of improve your mental health. So that's definitely something. The last, I, th I mean, I think we've scratched the surface barely with, with what we could talk about today, but conscious of time, just one thing that we want to do going forward with all the guests that we have on the, the show is, is just ask them, where do you think your your grit? I mean, we kind of have touched on this before, but grit to me is just a brilliant word as it sums up exactly what I think people have when faced with adversity. You know, what, what, where did that come from? Was it your upbringing? Or? So I think my first memory in life was standing at my mum's bedroom window, looking for her car lights to come down the road. And she worked an awful lot. And so you know, we never knew when she was coming home and when she wasn't. And I remember standing there thinking, she's not coming. And something within me chemically changed and I realized I need to, I need to fend for myself. I need to protect myself. I need to survive because mum's not coming home, you know? I think that while in, in my life, that's sometimes been a negative thing because I've pushed people away in relationships or I'm a bit gung-ho and can go off on my own doing things, but I think ultimately that's what's pulled me through my darkest times. You know, and also the support, and I've been lucky sometimes having, you know, family members or friends, like, you know, if it wasn't for John, I never would have gone to Costa Rica. But there's a grit that comes from within, and I think the support network is, is really important, but I think what's probably clear is that you've developed because you've had to survive. You're a survivor at the end of the day. That's what you've done throughout your life. And you've made the changes that you've needed to make. Maybe by luck, you said, you know, when the accident happened, there was the right people there at the right time. But ultimately, you've dealt with the hand that you've been given at every moment in your life and you've made the changes and you're here now. And I think that's just, I think it's incredible. And next week, you're going to be standing up in Bristol giving a TED talk and that that's a, it's that's such an accomplishment and it's it's honestly a, a, a privilege to be able to say that 
we know you and we're, we're very proud of you so it's nuts but uh, you know then it's the pleasure is all mine you know having people like yourselves in my life and being asked to do a TED talk I'm like how how is this happening to me because it's they approached me and I'm and I'm I'm sort of like what is going on in my life and the only answer I've got is the work I'm doing to, to support myself and support my own mental health and the, the, just quickly the you know what you you touched on about mental health and weakness and therapists and you know it's not our mental health is no different to our physical health if you if you exercise enough without warming up cooling down and stretching you're going to pick up a physical injury if you're living your life like you said in a way where you're living for other people you're going to be unhappy and if you're unhappy for long enough you're going to pick up a mental injury anxiety depression headaches lack of sleep uh, poor sleep or issues with sleep it's no different you know we wouldn't feel any way about going to get an x-ray you know let's not feel any way about going to see a psychologist because if you take anything from this pod you know take my story and me saying that what what a neuropsychologist has done for me or what daily reflection and gratitude has done for me give it a go because you've got not absolutely nothing to lose yeah totally agree thank you david that was incredible honestly can clearly see why this was we've called this thriving in the face of adversity because it's been it's been unbelievable john any any parting thoughts yeah I mean, i'll be honest i'm, I'm still got that, the story from the details from the story from the start it's been stuck in my head for the last hour because the first time I've heard it in such depth I always says well, you need to know that you that you are a really good friend like an awesome friend to people and certainly to me so even though sometimes you feel that you can't give enough it certainly does not make you any less of a friend do you know what I mean and focusing on yourself is enabling you to help so many other people do you know what I mean I don't know you've been to the gym a good few times and you've that, had that talk other people from the gym mention your name to me and stuff ask how you are and stuff because you've had that much in effect in a short time or a few conversations that you've had with them so you should be proud that you're having that effect to people do you know what I mean like Rosie said we're both proud of you and I'm really looking forward to watching you do your TED talk next week and try to put you off <laughs> wave at you in the I think look maybe we could we could bring a workshop back to now the, the Battersea yeah, that, yeah that we'd would, love that, to. We'd I, love that would to. be amazing to do. Um, and look, let's let's you know you have we have a a great opportunity certainly within the the district community to you know it's unlike anything I see in corporate companies or schools. You know, you you all support each other so much in the gym. Do the outside of the gym as well, and you know, if you know, have honest conversations with each other and support each other and be there and offer advice or offer you know, criticism where it's needed and constructive feedback and, you know, let's 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 grow this community, you know, physically and emotionally and mentally and, and continue to to achieve things that we we look back on and go, how? Yeah. Well I think you've hit the nail on the head there. That's what's kind of what spurs us on. So I'm glad I'm glad that you could say that. So yeah guys, thank you for listening to this this month's edition. I think some really important topics were were dis- discussed and David thank you for coming we really appreciate it everybody get down to Bristol next week tickets still available they are I think the afternoon sold out the morning session which I'm speaking on 
there are some tickets left. Um, so if you do want to book, it, it's purely the morning session that I'm on. Um, but also, you know, follow my Instagram, daring underscore gratefully. And if, if anyone has absolutely any questions for me or wants to speak to me about anything I've mentioned or anything they're going through, then feel free to contact me on my Instagram. And I'm happy to help anyone in any way that I can, you know, if it's advice or signposting to people that I've worked with who have empowered me to empower myself and others, then I'm more than happy to do that. Brilliant. So yeah, that was daring underscore gratefully and go follow him. Yeah. And thanks for listening. Cheers. Thank you.